Well, good morning, Trinity Church, and welcome. We are glad you've joined us this morning uh, for worship here with us via the live stream. And uh, a huge thanks to, to everyone who's uh, contributed to the service so far this morning. I really want to say a big thank you to those of you who uh, helped us read our scripture this morning. And, and I'm glad we all get to, even though we can't be gathered together, to me it's incredibly important to see the faces of those in our church family and be able to uh, to worship along with you. Thank you for reading scripture with us. You know, I think our challenge during this time uh, is to be a people of prayer, a people of care, uh, and, and people of the word. And so this morning, that's what we want to do. Uh, as you heard the reading of God's word, we now in our worship service want to turn uh, to God's word uh, as we continue in worship this morning. You know, I think the word focuses us. It focuses us especially on Jesus. And this is one of the things we've been repeating week after week, this idea of looking to Jesus, um, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, uh, last week I actually planted a garden. And so before we jump into our scripture for this morning, I, I realized something that the word is something that focuses us because you see, um, as I was planting this garden, I, I was facing backwards. And I know you're supposed to like pull a string so you get a straight row and all that. But I was like, I think I'm good enough. I can do this on my own. So I'm walking backwards with a hoe, digging a digging a row. And I got to the end and I looked up and that row was the most zigzagged, crooked row you'd ever seen. Because here's the deal. You go towards what you're focusing on. And I was looking behind me. Uh, so it wasn't a straight row. And I think that when we think about God's word is uh, God's word focuses us. It focuses us focuses us on Jesus. And so this morning as we um, sow the seed of the Word of God, I want us to focus on Jesus. And we've done this the last couple of weeks. I want us all to recite together uh, Romans, uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, just a reminder of what it means to look to Jesus. So please uh, read with me as we, uh, as we recite these verses. So you can stand, you can sit, but let's all say these together. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what we want to do this morning is look to Jesus and remember the things that he went through on our behalf. And and we find ourselves this morning in a passage of scripture, which I think is going to speak volumes to us. Uh, and that is Isaiah 53, as we continue our series on the servant. This kind of wraps up our march toward Holy Week. And today is Palm Sunday. So we want to celebrate today the beginning of this week that we call Holy Week. And, and if you think about what is Holy Week, Holy Week is a week that is holy, a week that is like no other ever in the history of, of, of the world. Uh, and that's what we look back to as we celebrate this morning. As we've been going through these uh, verses from week to week, we've been asking this question, who is the servant that Isaiah keeps talking about? Isaiah keeps predicting 600 years before Jesus was born that there's going to be this person who comes. Uh, God calls him the servant, and this servant is going to do some amazing things. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we were first introduced to the servant, who he was. We looked at his task, what he was called to do, and that was to bring redemption to the ends of the earth. Uh, last week, we looked at what it was going to cost him. It was going to cost him shame and ridicule. And then today, we come to the fourth song about the servant, and it's called the Suffering Servant Song, uh, because it answers the question, what does he accomplish through his suffering? 
Um, this morning, I would just encourage you, you heard the words read already. Uh, actually, this song begins all the way back in chapter 52 uh, in verse 13. And I would just say to, say to you that this passage this morning that we're going to look at, personally for me, is one of the most meaningful passages that I think I've ever studied uh, and ever taught. And I also think this is one of those foundational passages that connects the Old Testament and the New Testament from Genesis to Revelation. It's almost like a bridge going all the way from Genesis to Revelation telling us how we can get there from here. And so if you have your Bibles or maybe you're, uh, you have an iPad or a phone that you're reading on, please keep that open this morning because we're going to be looking uh, verse to verse as we walk through this amazing passage, this amazing passage that, that turns our eyes upon Jesus. And we want to look full in His wonderful face this morning as we continue with this series. You know, uh, this morning, really, we're going to be looking at, at five things, five words that describe the servant. And, and as we go, you'll see this, this whole section of Scripture, beginning in Isaiah 52, 13, uh, is divided into five different stanzas. So it's, a, it's a, like a poem with five different verses. Each verse has, th- or each uh, stanza has three verses that are part of it. And what we also see is that the first verse of each section kind of tells you what that whole section is going to be about. With one exception, the very first verse of the whole passage kind of tells us what the whole passage is going to be about. And so that's where we want to start is in verse 13. And I'm going to read the first three verses because you didn't hear these read yet. Uh, So Isaiah 52 verses 13 through 15 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So as we think about this servant who is coming, this suffering servant, what are, what's this first word that would kind of sum up those three verses? And I believe it's the word glorious. Because what you see happening here in this very first section is, um, is, is really focusing on the result of what will happen in this whole song about the servant. And the word is glorious. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now you might say, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about suffering this morning. Well, we're, we're gonna get there. But this is, this is actually, uh, something if you've ever read, uh, Jim, I think it's Jim Collins' book that, or no, it's a, it's a book called, uh, Seven Effective Habits of Highly Effective People. One of them is beginning with the end in mind. And guess what? I think they stole that from Isaiah. <laughs> because what we see here is Isaiah focusing us in and saying, hey, here's where we're going. This servant is gonna be high and lifted up and exalted. That's where we're going. But before we can get there, we have to talk about all this suffering. Uh, But look at that, that verse 13, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You know, there's another two other places in Isaiah that use those words. One is in Isaiah chapter six, uh, when when Isaiah says, I uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I was in the temple and I saw the Lord robed in majesty, high and lifted up and exalted. And there's one other place. I think it's in chapter 56. I'm not I can't remember for sure. But both of those other places where it's talking about someone being high and lifted up and exalted, it is clearly referring to the Lord. And so for Isaiah to use this description of the servant is profound because he's saying that this person is divine. He should be high and lifted up and should be exalted. Verse 14, what we see is, but how is he going to be exalted? What's, What's the coronation look like? 
Well, verses 14 and 15 drop a hint here that it's not going to be pretty. In fact, it's going to be the opposite of what we would expect. It says people were astonished at you. It says many were astonished at you. Keep that word in the back of your mind. That word many is going to come up over and over again throughout this passage today. Many were astonished at you because why? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form was beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, what happens to this person, to this servant, is going to be so grotesque that when people look at him, they might not even recognize that he's a human. That's how bad it's going to get. But look at verse 15. The result of this shall be, so he shall sprinkle many nations. He shall sprinkle many nations. What is that talking about? Well, if you go back to Leviticus uh, in the Old Testament, talking about what the priests did in order to bring uh, forgiveness to the people, they would sprinkle the blood uh, on the altar. And that was part of the ritual that God prescribed for forgiveness of sins each year. And here we have this person, this servant, who's going to come and not just sprinkle the nation of Israel, but sprinkle many nations, those who trust in him. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. In other words, this person who's coming, this servant is going to be like no other person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Because if you haven't noticed, uh, it's talking about kings here. Kings and politicians don't frequently get recognized for shutting their mouths, do they? I mean, even just looking at what's happening in the news these days with coronavirus, it's amazing how the, re- the leaders and rulers around the world uh, are constantly blaming that guy or blaming this country. It's that politician's fault or no, it's her fault. And they're just always talking, always yakking. But this passage tells us that all that noise, all that chatter, when these people see who the servant is and recognize who he is, they're going to shut their mouths. And they will be in full realization of who he is. Revelation 1, if you want to to read, I think really what we're seeing here in Isaiah 52 is a picture of the resurrected Jesus. After he is surrounded in all his glory, and as Philippians 2 tells us, after he suffers, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. So that's the first word I believe to describe the servant as this word glorious. And I think with each of these words, we have a response that we are called to make. And so when you think about this servant described as glorious, what should our response be? Well, I think the word that I would use here is worship. Worship. When you recognize that this king who came, who was marred and and hurt in such a way that we're about to discuss, and yet comes out with the result that many nations are washed in his blood, all those who, who believe in him, What can we do but worship Him? Revelation gives us all these pictures of every knee from every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing before Him and worshiping Him. And guess what? We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to worship Him. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. Right now we can't gather together in the same place, but we can gather at the same time, worshiping Him in song. I love the songs that Miguel, Cindy, and Anthony led us through this morning. Just focusing us, turning our eyes upon Jesus. And I would just say this, when we talk about worship, your response to the glory of this king, your worship is both personal, like your private worship. It's what happens on your own from day to day. Worship does not just happen when you're gathered with with the family of God. You have this thing called private worship. So let these truths sink in and affect the way that you worship God in private. But also let them affect the way that we worship when we are all together 
whether it's by internet or whether we're gathered together in the same room. Let this affect you deeply to recognize the glory of this King. When we talk about Holy Week, we have a number of unique ways to worship Jesus this week. As we remember on Monday Thursday, the last supper he shared with his disciples, we remember the first communion that he shared with them. Uh, we have Easter Sunday. We have this Holy Week devotional. Worship Him privately and also corporately throughout this week. So that's the first word. First of the five words that describe the servant. I want to move into the second verse of this song, and it's really in uh, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. And I think the word that sums up the servant in these verses is rejected. Rejected. Let me read these verses. It says, Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, this idea of him being rejected, it begins with this, those, that chapter 53, verse 1, it says, who has believed this? In other words, the whole idea is when people look at this servant and see what he goes through, they're going to say, this is unbelievable. Who'd have thunk it? There, there is no possible way that this is how God has chosen to rescue the world. It can't be. It's unbelievable. No one would have recognized it. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? No one recognized that this is God flexing his muscle because it looked like the opposite of that. It looked like the opposite of that. What does it say? Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is not a picture of something that's flourishing. This is something that you almost wouldn't notice. Uh, at my old house in Birmingham where I used to live, I had this garden, and, and in this one corner of the garden every year, there was this stump that actually the previous owner had cut down. It was a mimosa tree. And every year, it would send out a little sucker out the side, just this little spindly thing. And I wouldn't even notice it at first. And then after a few weeks, as you know, with mimosa trees, they explode and get huge. And it would take over the whole garden. Well, what we're talking about here is this idea of just this little spindly sapling that's sticking out of a stump. Most people wouldn't even notice that it's there. In fact, it's unbelievable that this thing, this weak servant, would be God's method for rescuing the world. It's unlike, verse 2, we see he's unlike the great kings of Israel. You know, if you think about King David, King David had strength and power, one of the most powerful. He was good looking, we're told. Um, King Solomon had grandeur. And yet this person, this suffering servant, has none of those things. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But what sets this king apart, as we saw last week, is when he opens his mouth. The things he says and the things he tells us are the word of God. And that is what sets him apart. You know, verse 3, when we look at these descriptions, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. These things are the things that would make him repulsive to us. And we would say, oh yeah, he could never be the one who's going to rescue us. I mean, he looks like, matter of fact, it looks like he's suffering, maybe even being punished. Clearly, he's not the king who's going to rescue us. And it says, we esteemed him not. 
That word esteemed is actually an accounting word. It's like if we were trying to weigh him on the scales and say, is he worth anything or not? We would definitely put this person, this suffering servant, would be thrown in the category of worthless, rejected, despised. We would treat him as something worthless. He could never amount to anything. In the eyes of humans, that's what this servant looked like. In fact, that's what Jesus looked like. He was rejected by humans. And so when we realize this is how he's described, how do we respond to this word rejection? Well, I would just encourage you, I think our response is to be to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. Because it's easy to say, oh yeah, of course, those people back in Jesus' day and before him uh, didn't realize he was the Messiah and they rejected him. But I would never do that. I would never despise him or treat him as worthless. And yet I would just challenge you on that a little bit. Think about the story of Holy Week where Peter, one of the the three close disciples, denied Jesus three times, even though he had promised he never would. All 12 disciples ran away from him. And I think even if you know Jesus closely, sometimes we are tempted to be ashamed of him. Or maybe even go to the extent that Peter did and deny him. Deny that you know him. And so examine yourself. Is this something you do? Do you find yourself ever despising or rejecting Jesus or being embarrassed of Him? Examine yourself. And I think the solution to that is God says, I want you to desire Him. He was not He had no beauty that we should desire Him, yet when we realize who He really is, we must desire Him. Psalm 34, 8, I read it this morning. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. We are called to desire Him and, and, and examine yourself to make sure that's what you're doing. But we come to the third word out of five now to describe this servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. And the third word is substitute. And this is three out of five, so this is right in the middle, dead center. It's the middle part of the passage, uh, which is what I would actually call the heart of the passage. Because this word substitute really describes in great detail, what it is that Jesus does when he comes for us. What this person, this servant who we know is Jesus, comes to suffer for us. Look at verse verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Flip back to verse 3. Remember it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There are those two words again. Griefs and sorrows. In verse 3, we're rejecting him. Because we don't want a man of sorrows. We don't want someone who's acquainted with grief. We want somebody who's in triumph. But then we flip over to verse 4 and we realize that the griefs he is bearing are our griefs. And the sorrows that we despised him for are actually our sorrows. Because what we see in this section, the heart of this psalm, is that Jesus came to be a substitute to take your place and my place. You know, there's some words I want us to notice here in this section. There's so much here we can't possibly cover it all, but I want to give us just a little grammar lesson this morning, okay? Now, kids, you're out of school, and so you thought, you know, I'm doing some little home education, but at least on Sunday I don't have to get educated. Well, I'm going to give you a grammar lesson. So kids, adults, everyone, pay attention to this. I want us to talk about pronouns. What we see here in this passage are some key pronouns. Uh, And the pronouns I want us to look at are we, us, and he and him, okay? We and us, and he and him. 
So here's the deal. When you have the pronoun we, that's usually the subject of a sentence. Somebody who's the subject. And we could say, we are gathered for worship this morning. That means we are the ones worshiping. But look at how we is used in this passage. Because see, whenever we see we as the subject in here, we in some way are failing. We are failing. It says, we esteemed him stricken. That's wrong. Verse 6, all we like sheep, we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. See, when we are the subject, we are failing. But here's the other thing. When we are the object, when it talks about us, guess what we are? We are receiving God's grace. We are receiving something we don't deserve. We are failing, but we also are able to receive. When we are the object, we see that God is gracious and we are receiving. Look, at it says, He has borne our griefs. He's taken them from us. He's carried our sorrows, taken them away from us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded in our place. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with God. That's what we've received. Not because we deserve it. Because guess what? These verses as do all of Scripture make clear that we are flawed, we are broken. Apart from God's help, we deserve death and punishment for our sins. So God is gracious and we receive many things. But look at what it says when we look at the pronoun now, He. What does it say about Him? He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed. That's the, the idea of just crushing and destroying. He was crushed for our iniquities. With His stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, He and Him, whenever that pronoun is used, what we see is God's punishment being placed on Him. And we also see that he is completely innocent. So those are some important words. This idea that we receive great things even though we deserve terrible things. He, does, he receives terrible things so that he can give us great things. He is our substitute. Another thing I want us to notice is the words for sin in here. Again, just in case you missed this, uh, we are all sinners. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. Verse 5. Verse, uh, transgressions are willful rebellions against God. In other words, we know the right thing to do, and we've done the wrong thing anyways. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquity is this idea of being twisted or crooked. And really, that's what we are. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, humans have been twisted and crooked. And Jesus takes the punishment for that crookedness upon himself so that he can give us peace with God. All we like sheep, verse 6, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a powerful verse. You heard it quoted multiple times earlier today. But it begins with the word all, and it ends with the word all. Just in case you're wondering, that includes all of us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. That's all of us as a group. But it doesn't just leave it specific as a group. It says, we have turned everyone to his own way. You could fill your own name in there. You saw a lot of other names being filled in in the video this morning. 
But you could fill your own name in there. Marcus has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You know what we see here is if you look at these verses, you could say this substitution, Jesus taking all this in our place, it's unjust. He's innocent. How has there ever been anything more unjust than this? You know, as a group, He takes our sins. He takes our problems. And His solution is to die in our place. That's what we see happening in these verses. And so this idea of being a substitute is actually something that we see described in the New Testament. I want to show you just a couple of verses. First Peter 2, verses 24 through 25, that says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I love that verse. You know, what you find in the New Testament is so many places that look back to Isaiah 53 to explain why we need Jesus and what Jesus came to do. Because what First Peter tells us is that he got what we deserve. He got what we deserved. And it says he brought us healing. You know, in this time of, of coronavirus, anytime you see that word healing, by his wounds you are healed, is that talking about physical healing? Or is it talking about spiritual healing? And I want to spend just a second talking about this. Because see, if you go back to Matthew, I think it's chapter 8, verse 16. It says Jesus healed all these people. He healed Peter's mother. And then they brought him demon-possessed people and sick people and lame people. And Jesus healed all these people to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. Saying, he has healed us by his wounds. You have been healed. So that's talking about physical healing. And yet when you come to this passage in First Peter that I just read to you, it's talking about spiritual healing. So which one is he providing? Well, I would just tell you this, that the Messiah, King Jesus, the suffering servant, brings us both kinds of healing. And both kinds, physical and spiritual healing, are kingdom characteristics. And so Matthew in his gospel wants to tell us that when Jesus' kingdom comes, he brings both physical and spiritual healing. He is able to heal any disease, any illness that is out there. And yet, sometimes we look around and we see that he chooses not to do that. What we do know is that he makes spiritual healing available immediately. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we know that that is available immediately. And we also know that he has promised us in Revelation that one day there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more grief, no more weeping. He has promised to heal us both physically and spiritually through his resurrection. So during this time when we know, and some of us may even be afraid of sickness, know that God has healed your greatest sickness. If you've trusted Him, He's healed you from the virus of sin. And He can heal you. He can heal you from any other sickness that you may contract. In fact, He will heal you eventually in eternity. But trust Him that no matter what you go through, know that Jesus has already gone through things as well. So this idea of Jesus Christ being our substitute what does that motivate us to do? And I would just say, I think our response here, when we look at the sins that we placed on Jesus and what he received, is he calls us to repent, to turn from those sins. See, if, you've, if you have trusted Jesus already and you know he's your savior, then why would you keep wallowing around in the things that caused him to die? He set you free from those things. So run away from them. And if you say, I'm not sure what you mean about 
trusting Jesus. I don't know about that, but I can try to turn from my sins. I'll, I'll try to repent. Guess what? You cannot turn from your sins apart from God's help. And I think the first thing is, if you've never trusted Christ, first of all, you have to admit that you have a problem, that you are a sinner, that you are flawed, and you know that you've done things that are sinful. And you also have to realize that God says, if you've committed even one sin, you are deserving of the punishment that Jesus received. But the good news is, Jesus has already received the punishment. All you have to do is trust Him and turn from those sins and turn to Him. Turning is only possible with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what the word repent means. So those are the first three words. Glorious, He was rejected, He was a substitute. That brings us to the fourth word, and that word is willing. The idea of Him being willing or voluntary. Um, This idea that He was the suffering servant is not something He was forced to do. He did this in a voluntary way. And how do we know this? Uh, Look at verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. A couple things in that verse, verse 7, that I want us to notice. It says that even though He was suffering, He opened not His mouth. Now there's a couple reasons why somebody in Jesus' position would open their mouth. Uh, For one, if you're on trial and you're innocent, and they're about to condemn you to death, what would you do? You'd say, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm not guilty. I didn't do it. And you would be protesting and saying, I'm I'm innocent. Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't protest because he's willingly accepting this penalty. The other thing that might happen is you're on trial and you realize you're going to be put to death and you would say, okay, maybe if I admit that I'm guilty, then they'll let me off or they'll pardon me. And so you'd say, yes, I confess. I did commit the crime. Well, guess what? Jesus did not commit any crime. So he had nothing to open his mouth and confess. So the fact that he was silent proves that he was innocent and proves that he was willing, voluntary, desiring even to complete the sacrifice on our behalf. It was voluntary. It says, like a sheep before the shears is silent. Now this is really something really interesting happened to me yesterday that helped me understand this passage in a way that I've never understood it before. Okay, are you ready for this? For the first time in my life, I actually sheared a sheep. Okay, I did not grow up on a farm that had sheep, but we moved to this farm out here uh, out by Barker's Corner where, where we're renting some property, and guess what? There happened to be a sheep there. And so yesterday, my kid said, Dad, that sheep needs to get sheared. And I didn't even think about the fact that I was going to be preaching on this passage. But I realized one thing. We got the sheep, we laid him down, and I could not believe it. He laid there so still the entire time we were shearing him except for when we nicked him. But almost the entire time, he laid there completely still and didn't protest at all. In fact, we took a video and posted it and showed it to some of our family members. And one of the family members even remarked, wow, did you sedate that sheep before you sheared him? And I had no idea this is how it worked. But this idea of of a sheep being sheared, they just lay there and let you do the job. And that's what Jesus did. He willingly went to the slaughter. He knew what was going to happen, but he didn't struggle against it. He didn't fight against it. He willingly accepted it on our behalf. He was executed like a sheep that was being led to the slaughter. And then it says he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, which we see fulfilled by him being buried in Joseph's tomb. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, it says, He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, this passage and other places in the New Testament make it clear that Jesus did this willingly. Because if I had described to you verses 4 through 6, all those terrible things that happened to him, him being punished for our problems, that would be unjust and wrong. But if he willingly becomes the sacrifice, that changes the whole equation. He chose to do this. Look at uh, John 10, verse 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A little bit later in John chapter 10, it says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In fact, Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. And then John tells us he gave up his spirit. He is the one, the way John words that tells us, he's the one who chose to give up his spirit. Jesus gave himself up, and he is the only person in all of human history who could complete God's plan of redemption. He was willing to do this. And so what should our response be? And I would just say this. Our response to the fact that he willingly did this, he chose to do this, is gratitude. Gratitude, thankfulness. Give thanks to him. You know, when we celebrate communion, this is one really practical way. We're actually going to do this together as a church family on Thursday night in our own homes. But communion is sometimes also called Eucharist, which is Thanksgiving. In other words, for Thanksgiving. And so this idea of we give thanks when we celebrate communion. We give thanks for his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us willingly so that we could be saved from our sins. So we respond with gratitude. Thank him regularly for this gift that he's given us. By the way, when we celebrate communion on Thursday, we're going to send out some instructions by email this week and probably post something on the website. So stay tuned for that. But I look forward to sharing communion with you all over the city and all over this area uh, by, by uh, live stream later this week. So five words to describe the servant. We come to the fifth word in verses 10 through 12. And that word is effective. And thank God, all these things that he did, all these things he experienced, it wasn't just an attempt. It was an effective action. The things he did have an effect. Earlier this year, we went through Ephesians and talked about the grace effect. God's grace has affected us through all these things that Jesus accomplished. Look at verse 10. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. And other translations say uh, it pleased the Lord to crush him. So what's going on there? What's it talking about? I think the idea here is this. Not that God gets some kind of sick pleasure out of seeing what happened to Jesus. No, it's, it's a way of saying that this is God's will. This was God's plan from the beginning of time. And Jesus fulfills it. He accomplishes it. The things he does are 100% effective to solve the problem that we have. So verse 10 tells us that he it was the will of the Lord it pleased him. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, there's that word again, many to be accounted righteous. See, one person, the only person, 
makes it possible for many people to be accounted righteous. That word accounted is obviously an accounting term. Again, it's where if God was looking so far in Isaiah 53 at what is on our side of the scales, we have sins, we have iniquities, we have flaws, we have griefs, weaknesses, all these problems. And then Jesus comes along and he says, all those debts that those people owe, write them off. We're going to not call them guilty anymore. We're going to account them as righteous. I'm going to declare them not guilty. I will account them. I will declare that they are righteous because he shall bear their iniquities. So this idea of an accounting ledger, God says, you've been declared righteous. You don't owe anything anymore if you've trusted Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, it's kind of a summary verse that sums up the whole thing. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. In case you missed it, he bore the sins of you and me. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Now the word intercession could also be translated that he, he interposes himself. In other words, he puts himself in as the substitute so that we don't have to. He switched places with us. He switched places so that he could pay the penalty. And you also notice from these verses 10 through 12 that it's talking about almost like he came alive again. In fact, that's what he does do. And we'll see that next week when we celebrate Easter. Just We can't talk about that yet, not till next week. But he does come alive again. And what he does is absolutely effective. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Jesus Christ, in verse 11, we see this, and Jesus Christ is the only person who could complete this effective sacrifice so that he might bring us to God. What's our response to this? This effective sacrifice of the servant is trust. That's the message of Isaiah. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of the entire Bible is trust God. Trust completed work of this suffering servant that he did on your behalf. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Have you believed in Him? Have you trusted in Him? And that, what that means is you rely on Him fully for the forgiveness of your sins. You realize that there's nothing I can do. In fact, if you've grown up in some traditions in Holy Week, you may have all these different rituals you do during Holy Week. And a lot of people think, and a lot of religions think, uh, that if they do things just right during Holy Week or just right on these holy days, then God will smile at them and say, you're good enough, you can come on in here to heaven. But nothing could be further from the truth. Let this Holy Week remind you that there's nothing you can do. You have to depend 100% on the one who has done it for you. The suffering servant, Jesus, is his name. Have you trusted him? Have you depended on him fully? He suffered for you. He suffered for me. You know, when you look at these five words, our glorious servant who was rejected, who came willingly as a substitute in our place so that he could be an effective sacrifice to save us. And we think about this week, 
what that cost him. The terrible price that Jesus had to pay that we're reminded of here in Isaiah 53 for us on our behalf. You know, we've looked at these five words about Jesus this morning. But I want to end by just giving you a word from Jesus. And I want to invite our worship team to come back to the platform. We're actually going to uh, close with a word of, uh, close with a song after uh, I pray here in a second. But we've said five words about Jesus. Now I want to give you a word from Jesus. See, Jesus is calling and he says in Matthew 11 verse 28, come unto me, all you who are weary and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, that's possible because of the things that are described in Isaiah chapter 53. You can trust Him for salvation. And you can depend on Him in every circumstance of your life. No matter if you get sick, no matter what. Realize that Jesus, our Savior, the suffering servant, has even experienced death on your behalf. And He came out the other side to offer us eternal salvation. So come unto me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for how it has focused us on your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that as we go from where we are worshiping, Lord, that we would proclaim this to others, that we would give thanks to you in our hearts, and God, that we would remember these amazing truths that you showed us about your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to serve us and die for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.